Welcome to Common Ground Church, Rwandabosh, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's Spirit. Jonah is an Old Testament book that is rich in imagery, the sovereign hand of God, how God guides those who believe in him, and his heart for the nations. Please continue listening for today's message. The Book of Jonah, a tale about God's great mercy and justice, a tale about a reluctant follower, a tale about a lost city, a city of destruction and great evil, one that had brought great harm to God's people for a long time. God had seen Nineveh's sin and it was vast, but God's love is infinite and his mercy boundless. God, the creator of the world, the namer of prophets and kings, chose a messenger. Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and speak my message. But Jonah rebelled. He would not follow God if it was to serve people he wished God hated. Jonah ran in the opposite direction, away from God, away from God's call and away from God's mission. But God wasn't done with Jonah. He called a great storm over the ship and caused Jonah to confess his rebellion before the very types of people he didn't think deserved God's grace. The sailors prayed to God for forgiveness and did as Jonah instructed and tossed him overboard, leaving him to drown. When the waters stilled, the sailors rejoiced in God, praising his name and not their false gods. But God wasn't done with Jonah. He called for a vessel of salvation and a great fish to swallow his chosen servant. For three days, Jonah was in this fish where he weighed up God's sovereignty and grace in light of his own failings. After which, God called the great fish to spit Jonah onto the land, alive and safe. But God wasn't done with Jonah. Once again, he called his chosen messenger to take his message to the great city of darkness. This time, Jonah obeyed, walking partway into the city and declaring, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. A puny message from a reluctant prophet, but God's message is mightier than the messenger. An eight-word sermon and a city turned to God. They called for fasting and repentance from the greatest to the least of them, having just an inkling that this great God of justice may be great in mercy too. When God saw them acknowledging and repenting of their sinfulness, he relented and showed mercy An infuriated Jonah, angry that God wasn't going to smite his enemies, went and sulked on a hill, hoping that God would still destroy the city. But God wasn't done with Jonah. He called a plant to grow up overnight to shade his sulking servant. Relieved from the heat, Jonah was glad for the plant. But God called for a worm to consume the plant, and when the sun rose, called the sun to beat down on Jonah's head. Upset that the plant had died, Jonah wished he himself was dead. God asked Jonah how he could have so much compassion for the life of a plant that lived for a day while wishing that God would kill 120,000 lost people in their city. The book of Jonah, a tale about a follower who wanted the very mercy he needed from God withheld from others. A tale within a tale of God's great mercy in our great need. Evening church, uh, tonight I'll be reading from Jonah chapter 1:11 to chapters 2:10 from the ESV version. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. And I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, 
Let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not us on the innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in on me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and the prayer came to you into the holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word, reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Maki. Good evening, everybody. I... Um, I had on my notes here to make sure to mention the great Springbok game that we had last night, but I've scratched it out because I wrote it early afternoon yesterday, so it's been, uh, been scratched on. Great to be back in the evening, the reason being this morning I got called Ryan about five times, and in the evening meeting Ryan gets called Garth, so it's great to be here. Um, but we are in our Jonah series. We're in our Jonah series. We're in week three of our um, Jonah series. And hopefully you've had those little books and you've been going through them and you've been feasting on the Word of God in those uh, daily uh, devotionals. And what you would have noticed is that Jonah's a small book, but it says a lot. Jonah is a small book, uh, but it says a lot. And Lou did such a great job uh, in the first week of launching us into the series of Jonah. She gave us such a great context to the book of Jonah. We looked at, uh, she mentioned history and timelines and character references and uh, really gave us this full picture. And, uh, and then she focused in on one of the kind of core themes of Jonah being a runaway prophet or a runaway uh, believer. And I don't know about you, but after that first week of getting such great context, every time I opened the book of Jonah, it's like I just, every word came alive. We just, there was such a great wide view that made the narrow view so interesting and so in context and spoke to me so much more. And then last week, we, um, we saw Jonah continue into his rebellion. He jumps on a boat and he wants to take a holiday in Spain and defy a God and uh, literally goes in the opposite direction. The Lord wants him to go to Nineveh and he goes, nope, and heads onto a boat, jumps on a boat um, exactly in the opposite direction that God calls him to. And, uh, and then what we see is God brings about this tempest, this storm comes about. And Jonah realizes while he's on the boat that this storm, this tempest has come because he's on the boat with these sailors. He even says to these sailors, he says, let me tell you guys, 
this is because of me. And Ian used that illustration last, uh, last week. It was kind of like a kid going to timeout where the kid goes, if I do this, I'm gonna go to timeout, does it anyway, and then walks themselves to timeout. And that's basically the kind of the attitude that we see from Jonah. And Ian showed us from the text that God's, uh, it will discipline those that he loves. There's something of an assurance of his love when he disciplines us. There's the, the grace of trouble in our lives. There's the grace of trouble uh, in our lives. And as Ian would end off, we would, uh, we would see this picture of Jonah in the, um, in the stormy sea. And uh, this is where he would, uh, he would find himself. And then what would happen is, is that he would zoom out and show us this picture of the whale, of the whale. And there comes the rescue of God. And this is chapter two. This is chapter two of Jonah, and this is where we find ourselves tonight. Um, so in 1940, in World War II, we saw, well, the world got to witness one of the greatest rescue missions in history. And most of you would be aware of the evacuation of Dunkirk. Everyone now is like, I love that movie. I love that movie. It was a real life event, not just a movie with Harry Styles, just so you know. <laughs> Everyone's like, it was amazing, great ending. Um, but, but it was a real life event, the great evacuation of Dunkirk. And what happened was, if you haven't watched the movie yet, 338,000 soldiers were stranding on a beach, stranded on a beach in um, the north of France on this beach in Dunkirk. And what happened was they couldn't be saved. They were stuck there. They were deserted there to their demise. The German soldiers and, and army had, had kind of formed around them and uh, they were left there. And what happened is if there was no intervention, they were gonna go to war and they were gonna die. That was what was gonna happen. And they couldn't get through um, by the air because uh, the German planes would shoot down the, uh, the Allied planes. And so they couldn't do that. They'd have these things called dogfights that we'd, we'd know about. And then they couldn't also get through the water because the big ships couldn't actually make it to the beach. They couldn't get uh, uh, to the beach because it was too shallow. And so what happened is, is that you had a whole lot of civilian ships and commercial ships uh, from England that would sail across the channel and they would come and help with the rescue and manage to rescue the majority of the, the soldiers. Them being stuck on that beach to their demise was one of the great calamities of World War II. It was one of the great calamities of World War II. And even... Um, Winston Churchill, in his great or famous speech about we would fight them on the beaches, he would mention this as one of the great miracles of deliverance. One of the great miracles of deliverance. That's how he uh, would define it. And all of these private boats and all of these um, civilian boats or commercial boats, they would be able to uh, put a flag uh, on, their, on their boat. And it was called the Jack of Dunkirk. And they would be able to put that flag. And the reason they could put that flag in there is because the rescue belonged to them. The rescue belonged to them. And no one else could fly that flag. To this day, those civilian boats or owners of those boats could have that flag because the rescue um, belonged to them. And uh, there was a famous, oh, not a famous, there was a soldier uh, by the name of Harry Garrett. And uh, he was one of the, the soldiers that was rescued. And they would, um, uh, when they got to shore, he would be uh, basically interviewed by this newspaper. And, and this is what he would say. He would say, you knew this was a chance to get home and you kept praying, please God, let us go, get us out. 
uh, get us out of this mess back to England, to see that ship that came in to pick me up and my brother up was the most fantastic sight. We saw the dogfights up in the air, hoping nothing would happen to us. We saw one or two terrible things, and then someone said, there's Dover. That was when we saw the white cliffs and the atmosphere was terrific. From hell to heaven was how the feeling was. You felt like a miracle had happened. You felt like a miracle had happened. And it's no wonder that Harry Garrett would react like this. There's something about the relief of rescue that makes you want to recount what happens to people and speak and make much of the rescuer. There's something that happens in us when this happens. And we see the same in scripture. We saw it with, um, if you know the story of the Red Sea or the spilling of the Red Sea. The Israelites would get to the Red Sea. There was no other way. And they'd have the Egyptians, Pharaoh and the Egyptians following them. Moses would lift up his staff as God would tell him to. And you'd see the Red Sea open up wide. And the Israelites would walk through, get to the other side, and the Egyptians would follow and the sea would close up. And what happens on the other side? You can go see in Exodus, I think it's 15. We have the song of the sea or Miriam's song. where They burst into song. There's a burst of relief and thanksgiving, recounting what happened and making much of the rescuer. And today, as we go through our text, we're gonna see another great rescue mission and this time by God through a great fish. And like, like Harry Garrett, like Miriam's song in the Song of the Sea with the Israelites, we're going to see Jonah, our runaway prophet, call out to God in a psalm or prayer-like psalm from the belly of, a whale, of the whale or the great fish. And, and this prayer is really a prayer of thanksgiving. If we take a, a closer look at this prayer, we're going to see kind of a display and a dance between Jonah's sinfulness and God's grace. And it's gonna, it's gonna work itself out in four ways. There's four lenses that we're gonna see this through this prayer. We're gonna see it through Jonah's realizations that he has. We're gonna see it through Jonah's uh, remembrance. We're gonna see it through Jonah's repentance. And we're gonna see it through Jonah's redemption. Um, and uh, we're gonna see that Jonah's prayer is gonna kind of build up to this mighty declaration. There's, there's kind of a, a main point that's gonna stick out to us. And uh, just like those little ships of Dunkirk, that only they can fly that flag because the rescue belongs to them. What we're gonna see in this prayer, in this great declaration, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. The rescue, the spiritual rescue of our souls belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we get to be your people gathered this evening. Um, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would deepen our understanding of who you are. Give us greater revelation of who you are, Lord, this evening. We desire to meet with you. We desire to praise you and worship you. Thank you for your steadfast love that endures forever. We praise in your mighty name. Amen. So we've got to remember this prayer is coming from the belly of the fish. The belly of the fish. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, if you're here for the first time, you might be thinking, God, come on, come on. A guy swallowed by a fish, three days, three nights, then vomited out onto the shore. 
Come on, this can't be real. Do you really believe this? And I'd say we do. We do really believe this. And Jesus gives an account for this in the gospel. He actually refers back to the story of Jonah in the gospels. And the reason we believe this is because we believe that it's miraculous. We believe that it is uh, miraculous. And uh, Lou spoke about that Tim Keller quote, which mentioned that if you believe in the miracle of the resurrection, then you shouldn't find it difficult to believe in something as miraculous as this. Because we serve a God of miracles. We serve a God that could make a donkey speak. He can bring fire down from heaven. He, even for Joshua in a war, he would stop the sun for a day. That is the God that we serve. And so we, we believe this. And the reason I just mentioned this is because I actually don't want us to get sidetracked by, by the signs of, of the fish. I want to invite us to bring our hearts before the Lord this evening, to be receptive to the message that we're going to be hearing this evening. That we serve a big and a powerful God and let the, let the smaller miracle of the fish point to the bigger miracle of salvation, the bigger miracle of his rescue. So let's get into our points. Firstly, let's talk about Jonah's res, uh, realizations as we move into his prayer. Uh, Jonah's realizations, he realizes a couple of things. And I'd say the first thing that he realizes is he realizes that even in his own distress, God saved him. Even in his own distress, God saved him. It said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. And um, if we're honest, I think Jonah's being a little bit kind to himself by using the words distress. What he should say is, I called out to you in the middle of my mess, the mess that I made with all my decisions. That's what he should be saying. And, uh, and Jonah recognizes that the decisions that he has made have, have led him to this point, have led him to his distress. And can you believe it? God still answers him. He cried out from the belly of Sheol. That just means the, the land of the dead. That's where he was heading. And yet God still heard his voice. Isn't this an amazing truth that we can call out to the Lord and he still hears us even when we've made a mess of our lives? Even when it's our fault, we can call out and he still hears us. He still hears us. He doesn't require us to clean everything up before we get to the Lord, before we speak to Him, before we call out to Him. All He requires is that we do, that we do call out to Him. And in His grace, He hears us. He responds to us. We have our, our runaway prophet fleeing from the presence of God, realizing that God's presence is available to him in his time of need, despite his sinfulness. And I've, I've seen this in my own life. There was a time when I first came to the Lord when my life was really a mess. It was really a mess. And it was nobody else's fault. It really was my fault to all the space that I had found myself in. And in that time, I called out to God. There was a, a, a thing of, of calling out to God, understanding His grace. But there was something in me that thought, Lord, now that I've called out to you, don't you worry. I'm going to fix all this and then I'll be worthy of being your son. I'll be worthy of the relationship that we can have. Don't worry, I'll fix all this before I step into that. And just remember God clearly saying, that life that you think is so messy, I'll take it. I'll take it, I'll pay for it. And we'll start there. And you don't have to fix yourself before you come and call out to me in your distress. What I'll do is I'll come alongside you and hey, let's walk together and let's try to work these things out. We can try to pick up some of the pieces along the way. 
but I could call out to him in my distress and he would meet me there. He wasn't waiting over there and asking me to work my way towards him. It's a beautiful truth. Even if it's our fault, we can call out to him. He will respond. It's a grace to us. Second thing he realizes, he realizes God's love in his discipline. He realizes God's love in his discipline. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your side, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. You see how he, he accredits the storm to God's handiwork. He says, you cast me in the deep, your waves, your billows. And we spoke about this a little bit last week, but God, in his sovereignty, he allows the storms of life, he allows the tempests of life to be a grace of trouble to us in order to win our hearts back to him. And what it usually does is it gives us a bit of a wake-up call. It has this sobering effect on us. We realize our sinfulness, our rebellion. We also realize God's goodness. Realize his grace in this. And this is what is working through Jonah at this time. It says he'll look upon his holy temple, yet I'll look upon his holy temple. In other words, I realize your discipline was necessary because as someone fleeing from your presence, I can return to your presence. I realize that it was necessary, but I realize that you are good. I see the bigger picture of who you are in this. And there's something of a maturity in this. There's something of a greater surrender, greater humility in this. When we can look at our lives and we can say, we know the discipline of God is good. Amongst the mess, we can know that He is good. And we know that His discipline is something of an assurance of His love for us. Like we spoke about last week, there's this assurance of our sonship and our daughtership when we know that we're disciplined by God. It's a confirmation of His love for us. And it starts to soften us. It starts to give us this beautiful humility that we can have before the Lord. And David, known as a man after God's own heart, become king of Israel. And he would go on to um, do great sin. And he, um, he would end up committing adultery. He would end up uh, murdering someone. And he would have this moment where he would always have what we would call spiritual amnesia of the realization of his sin. And, and God would use a prophet, Nathan, to go and speak to David. And David would come and speak to him. Uh, he wouldn't tell him directly what he had done, but he'd use a parable. And like, like Jesus would use parables in the Gospels for us to see things a bit differently and spiritually. And this would awaken David to what he had done. To awaken David to, and he would realize it would have this sobering effect of what he had done. And God would discipline him in that moment. And in this discipline, he would get to this place of um, humility, um, this place of beautiful brokenness before the Lord. And he would write Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is him, him writing about what he was going through at that time. And he would say this, he would say, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. And what has happened in this moment is, is that there's this broken, contrite spirit, this humility that has come, that the Lord has created, that, that, that falls into complete surrender. And through God's discipline and through his love, what he's done is he's taken him to a place 
of complete surrender to him, which is an amazing place to be. Completely yield to God. It feels a lot like letting go of a lot of stuff around us and in us and trusting the Lord wholeheartedly and going your way, not my way. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And when we realize the goodness of this, the goodness of the Lord and the goodness of his discipline, our souls start to be refreshed in that way, so authentically before the Lord. The other thing he realizes is he realizes that without intervention, he was as good as dead. Without intervention, he was as good as dead. It says, the, water, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The, the deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And what we see here is Jonah paints this picture of his hopelessness, his helplessness in this moment. That God, that without God and without his help, he's gonna get what he deserves, what all his decisions would have led to, which is death, which is death. And it's the reality for us all, that our sin, our rebellion is leading us somewhere. It's not idle. It's not keeping us idle. The wages of sin are death. And maybe for the first time, Jonah's actually realizing the real extent of the price of his decisions in this moment. Maybe he's, he's finally believing that the wages of his sin are leading to death. Because on the boat, he wasn't too nervous about that. Well, he probably was, but he was still set in his ways. Guys, it's me, I'm the problem on the boat, just throw me off the boat. In other words, no, I still think I'm right. I still think I'm right. And, um, and that's exactly what they do. But I think for us, it's so important. Do we have a sober view of our sin? Do we think the decisions that we're making that might be sinful are actually just leaving us idle? They're not actually going anywhere. Or do we need some seaweed wrapped around our head to give us a wake-up call of how one sinful decision after the next can lead to our demise? And this is God's grace to us. Part of the good news of the gospel is understanding the rescue, but it's understanding that we need to be rescued. It's having a sober reality check on our sinfulness, on our rebellion. It's taking back a little bit of the spiritual amnesia to know that we actually need to be rescued. Another thing we see is Jonah remembers the Lord. Jonah remembers the Lord. And we come to one of the words that I'm getting to just love in the Bible more and more, and it's the word yet. The word yet. Every time I see the word yet, I get super excited because it means everything that was said before is probably going to change with some good news. It says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And that's what moments like this do. They, they snap us out of what I've spoken about, that spiritual amnesia, and we remember the Lord. We remember the Lord. And this prayer is not new language to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. He would have known Old Testament scriptures. He would have known the Psalms. And what he's kind of done is, is that he, knowing that and having even sung some of those psalm, Psalms, he's taken the ingredients of that and it's kind of burst out into this prayer that he has, this sort of psalm that he has. I think of Psalm 130 that says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Psalm 18, in my distress, 
I called upon the Lord. I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. Psalm 42, deep calls out unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. And Psalm 3, salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be upon your people. All those ingredients, the scriptures that you would know in him. And this is what I want to say to us is that God's word, God's truth is a grace to us is a grace to us. When we, when we read, when we sing God's words, one of the purpose of it is for our souls to be able to bring back remembrance of God's truth when we need it the most. And you ever had that? When you, it comes to Monday morning and you're in the shower and you realise and you start just grooving a little bit and you start singing a couple of worship songs that you've sang, just me, um, sang that the night before and you start just getting a little bit of like a bonga, bonga and it starts going and it starts happening. And, and then usually my two-year-old tells me to shush dad. Um, and so uh, there's this moment that I start, oh, I walk around the office and I start whistling the worship songs that we've been singing. The reason is, is that these truths, we're washing these truths over us and they're starting to set in us. And when we spend time with the, the Lord daily, when we're spending time in His Word, when we're singing these songs, when we come and sit under the Word on, this, on a Sunday, what we're doing is we're building up a theological framework in our hearts of who God is. And what happens is, is that in the moments where you can experience suffering, discouragement, where there's a time of emotional turmoil, things come, what happens is what is in us comes out. And it's the, what our souls need most is remembering the truth about who God is at that time. And it's kind of like tent pegs. When we go camping, whenever you're putting a tent peg in the ground, wherever I am, I'm like, I really need, do you really need tent pegs? And I'm hanging these in and I'm like, are we really going to use this? Just put the tent up and leave it. The poles will be fine. Until two o'clock in the morning when the wind starts to come. And man, you see the significance of those tent pegs very quickly. And you're like, praise the Lord for tent pegs. <laughs> the same as the, God's word being a grace to us. This being in us and these truths being in us. So that we prepare and we have this theological tent peg of God's truth that we can speak to ourselves and to others in times when we need it most. He remembered the Lord. And God's grace of his word is to help us remember the Lord when we need to remember the Lord. The next we see is Jonah's repentance. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to pay. And throughout this prayer, you'll see kind of acknowledgements or a warming up of repentance, and there's, there's little glimpse of, glimpses of it. But I would say this is the point where kind of Jonah owns his stuff and also indicates a, a kind of a changing of ways and a surrender uh, to the Lord. And it says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. And he acknowledges the danger of looking within ourselves or looking outside of ourselves horizontally for our rescue instead of to the, our rescuer. And uh, what he's saying is that we can sometimes, we can acknowledge that we need rescuing, but we can sometimes run to the wrong things for rescue. We can sometimes run to the wrong things uh, for rescue. And the reality is that idolatry in our lives becomes our hope for rescue and not the grace 
of God and not the grace of God. And Jonah's probably referring to um, these sailors that were on the boat with him, because if we remember from last week, they first go to their kind of little gods to worship, and then they realize who the Lord is. What they do is they make sacrifices to him, they acknowledge it, and then they make vows to him as well. And so that's what we see, almost a repentance and God's grace in that moment. And he might be referring to that, but then he also says, what I have vowed I pay. So I think he's including himself in this as well. And you might find that his idolatry, I don't know what it would have been, but it's probably just the idolatry of self, maybe political power, being a prophet of the nations. Maybe it was reputation. And he kind of had a plan for his life and he was going, no, Lord, that's not the plan for my life. Don't send me there. I've got some good things going here. The idolatry of self and position. Maybe that's what was happening. And, uh, and this verse really stuck out to me because we've been talking about kind of the runaway prophet and the runaway believer. And what we see is, is that this kind of, it looks like a decision that's made quite quickly. Will you go? No, and I'm off. And I'm out of there. And I, and I know in my own life, I've speak, spoken to people before as well, where we think that those, those decisions are made quite quickly. But I can't help to think when I've been sitting in this text a little bit that maybe there was something of a hope that was looking to the rescue of smaller gods around us way before and when the decision came, it was just something that set it off. And maybe already this idolatry was in Jonah's heart a little before the time that this even happened. It was slowly turning over, slowly growing like a mold. And this was just the reaction of an idolatry that was there already where there was a hope in smaller rescue in the idolatry of his heart and not to the great rescuer and being obedient to wherever he might call him to go. And I know that that's also happened in my own life. I think from growing up, from when I was younger, there was something of me thinking that once I reach some sort of financial utopia or stability, and not like mega millions, but just a bit or a lot, <laughs> I um, maybe a lot more than a bit, but that I would arrive, uh, I would arrive, and that my whole life really, from where I study, what I do, to everything that I, is on the trajectory of reaching the financial utopia and the stability that I've been searching for, because when I'm there, I'll arrive, and you know what? Finally, I'll get to the shores and I'll be rescued there. And I think God has changed that and worked on my life, in, that in my life completely, to say you can't put your hope in that because I'm going to call you to do some stuff. I mean, even being in, in law, being called to become a pastor was a difficult, suddenly everything shook, everything shook. And it revealed what was actually in my heart. And there was actually a, Lord, no, actually, I, I've got to follow you, I've got to trust you. But there'll be moments along the way where my heart will, will shake a little bit in that. And so maybe there was something of a warming up of that idolatry, growing like a mold, before the decision even came. We don't need to look left and right for our rescue, not even within ourselves. We can just look to our rescuer. And then we see Jonah's redemption. We reach the, the closing line of Jonah's prayer. It's, it's really just this triumphant kind of declaration and, and a, a summing up, a conclusion of all his realizations up to this point. And, and this is it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
And, and Jonah has described, he's dead in the water. There's absolutely no way for him to be saved. And God, in his sovereignty, appoints a fish. He makes a way for rescue. We outside of his miraculous grace, it would otherwise not have been possible. But similar to those troops standing at Dunkirk on that beach, they were destined to their demise if there was no intervention. And spiritually, <clears throat> this is true for us because our sin and rebellion has left us too destined to be spiritually dead in the water. To be spiritually dead in the water. The same rebellion that's in Jonah is in us. We are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to redeem ourselves. Yet God, yet God can save us. Not only save us, he desires to save us. And he does this by his grace. And that's why the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just the greatest miracle of all time, it's the greatest rescue mission of all time. It's the greatest rescue mission of all time. There's nothing we can add to it. There's no part that we play to it. It's only by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not of your own doing. And when we, when we speak about grace, what do we, what do we mean <clears throat> by grace? And it's this undeserved favour or merit for someone who is unworthy of it. It's the undeserved favour or merit for someone who's unworthy of it. And it's important that we understand the fullness of this because sometimes we can think, well, just being nice is gracious. Or we even use the word being gracious, but it's not actually grace. We just talk about being gracious. Or we can talk about mercy or being merciful, and we think that's being gracious. But that's not what we see in the story of our, our runaway prophet. You see, there's also a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is when we can simply just pardon someone's sinful behavior. We can, we can pardon it. And um, grace is a little bit different because it doesn't only pardon that sinfulness, it pays for that sinfulness. It pays for it. It goes as far as to give that person unmerited favor, not just the pardon from their, from their sinfulness. Um, when Sam and I were on honeymoon many moons ago, um, we uh, went out to this restaurant to have a meal and uh, we got there and there was a waiter that was serving us and uh, we couldn't find him and uh, we eventually found him after a while. He got our order, then he got our order wrong from there and then he still blamed us for getting our order wrong and then we went out and we had to try to find him. He was having a smoke outside. It was like he was really not interested in being there. I don't know if it was just having a bad day or what it was, but it, I, we kept having to try and engage. If we got to the place where like, we're not even gonna go to dessert because we don't know what's gonna happen from there, you know? So we're not gonna go that far. And, uh, and so what we did is we asked for the bull. Even, even with the bull, we had to go and find him and find where we could get the bull and make sure that we could settle it. Anyway, the bull came. And I felt like in that moment, the Lord was like, give him a double tip. Give him a double tip. I think part of me also wanted to provoke Sam, but I was like, give him a double tip. Both worked. Um, Sam so was like, what are you doing? I was like, watch this. Um, but it was a beautiful moment for us. 
It was a beautiful moment for us because it was someone so undeserved. And there's something in you that goes like, you can't do this. And I know it's not a perfect analogy, but you can't do this. This is wrong. This person needs to learn a lesson. This needs to... And you go, no, here's double. I mean, just a tip would have been good, would have been almost gracious. But grace is a double tip. Grace is a double tip in that moment. And there's something of us, and that cost us in that moment for someone who didn't deserve that. And they didn't just get what they deserved, they got double that blessing. We bring to the table sin, rebellion, um, and God in his abundant love, he moves towards us and he gives us uh, his spirit. He gives us blessing. He gives us eternal inheritance because of his abundant love. And I think, we, I think we struggle with this concept with grace. And I think there's a couple of reasons why we struggle with this concept of grace. And I, and I want to just mention three. The first is I think there's some of us that don't believe that we're dead in the water. I think that there's some of us that don't believe that we're dead in the water. Some of us don't believe that we actually need rescue. Like Jonah, we get to the place where our hearts are so determined, we're so fixed on our way, we think we are so right and that we have it all together that we never really get to that point of admitting the rescue. It's, and it's a moment where we kind of need the seaweed. We kind of need the seaweed. And it's no wonder that God would use some of uh, tough circumstances in our lives to awaken us to our limitations, our shortcomings, to our sinfulness, that we need, to, we need something beyond ourselves. We need something beyond ourselves. And, and I said it before, but if we don't have the sober reality that we need rescue, then we're not going to see the rescuer. We're not going to see the need for the rescuer. We're not going to see the beauty of the rescuer and the rescue, his grace. For some of us, we can't believe it's free. We just can't believe it's free. There's no such thing as a free lunch. We can't believe it's free. For us, we believe that we have to somehow pay Jesus back. We need to try pay it back with good works. Try earn a bit of it. And so enters the striving in our faith. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I think, I think at the root of all of this is, is a pride in our heart. Because when we don't want to accept the gift, it's because we basically, we can't pay it back and we want to pay it back. And if we can't pay it back, we can't be the hero of our own story. If I can't pay back the gift, I can't be the hero of the story, and I have to admit my need. I mean, there's times, and we see this in our relationships all the time, there's times where I can't even buy someone a coffee. They're like, no, 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 no. You're like, oh, I just want to buy you a coffee. No, 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 I can't accept that, why? I can't pay it back, I can't take a free gift. You see, points of that. And the way that we honour someone who's given us a gift is not trying to pay them back or make it back to them. Well, it's not trying to show them how guilty we feel about having it. The way that you honour the gift giver is you enjoy the gift and you make much of the gift giver. You enjoy the gift and you make much of the gift giver. And lastly, I think the reason we struggle with grace is that some of us think we can add to it. Some of us, we think we can add to it. How crazy would it be if those troops um, 
went around telling the story of Dunkirk and the way that they would tell the story of Dunkirk was, let us tell you how brave we were walking through that cold water to the rescue boats. And that was the story. You'd be like, is that it? Yeah, that's it. Great courage, great heroes, cold water. It would be absurd. It would be absurd. It's not like Jack and Rose in the Titanic who could have made it onto that um, thing. But it would have been absurd, absurd. When we really understand the grace of God, we realize that there's nothing we could do to add to the rescue, add to our salvation. It's a free, undeserved, miraculous gift. But sometimes we actually think that our good works can help earn a part of it, that we could be part of the, 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 the rescue mission in it. And we, we can't, and we can't. Like we said in the beginning, those little ships of Dunkirk, the reason that they can have those flags, no one else can have those flags, the rescue belongs to them. In the same way, spiritually, in this case, the rescue belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord only. When I was talk, uh, researching on, on Dunkirk and reading up about it, I got to the point where I was thinking, I've been talking about the Jack of Dunkirk, this flag, the whole time. I don't even know what it looks like. And uh, I went and I Googled it and I saw what it looked like and it looks like this. And it's amazing because I know it has other symbolism, but it's a lion, a great fish in front of a cross. And when I looked at the lion, I thought, I see the authority and the power and the sovereignty of the Lord in that lion. I see the great fish, the grace, the abounding steadfast love of the Lord, his rescue. And we see the cross, what made it all possible, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All wrapped up in one flag. One of the great rescue missions of history pointing to the greatest rescue mission in history. And as people, we might not have flags, or as Christ followers, we might not have flags that we can walk around with, also that would be weird, but we don't have those flags. But in our rescuedness, in our rescuedness, we can walk around with a liberation and a freedom and a joy in Jesus that is a flag that says, I'm part of the ones that were rescued. I have been rescued. And let me tell you about my rescuer. Let me tell you about my rescuer and the greatest rescue mission on earth. We're gonna go into a time of communion. And the way that we're gonna do this is I'm gonna ask us, the band to come up and I'm gonna ask us to come and just get the elements and then to come take our seats. And I wanna just lead us into a prayer. So if we can come forward and just take some of the elements and we can sit down again, I'll lead us into a prayer.